Hello and welcome along to the Ruse Report, the place for all the latest news, gossip and analysis from the world of cycling. I'm Oli Attinger and I'm here with YouTube's best, yes, that's right, best cycling pundit, the one and only Lantern Rouge, otherwise known as Patrick. How are you on this lovely day, Pat? I'm well, Ollie. Welcome back, everyone. Enjoyed the first episode and there's been some great racing and cycling going on and, and some good off-the-bike related news as well, as we'll get into later. So I'm excited for this second episode. Yeah, there has been lots of exciting stuff happening. Um, this week, we will be talking about, well, of course, we'll be talking about the Vuelta, uh, what's going on in the second week? Uh, what else? We've got the Tour of Britain that's happening at the moment as well. And as always, we'll be rounding up some of the other big stories from the uh, world of cycling in the last seven days. Let's get into it. Okay, Pat. So week two of the Vuelta is done. It's been pretty good, actually, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been good to watch and not the whole scene has been set i guess by the individual time trial on stage 10 <clears throat> where, where as expected primos roglic took control of the red jersey putting a massive gap into his gc rivals i think he put two and a half 2.10 minutes into michael angel lopez nearly two minutes onto valverde quintana there's been a few funny memes floating around the internet i think cycling pulse shared a funny one too of quintana not liking the flat time trial too much he lost three minutes and those gc rankings have stayed about the same except for tadej pogaccia moving up into leapfrogging lopez into third so apart from that there's been there's been gc skirmishes but no real movements and i think roglic is looking pretty safe to touch on touch wood win this vuelta uh, with, which means I'll have a bit of egg on my face because I predicted that Milan Hell Lopez would beat him. About time, Pat, about time. Um, so in the ITT then, last week, for those that didn't watch it, what went down? Well, it was a, it was relatively flat apart from an initial climb, and that's what really suits a rider like Roglic because not only does he have elite frontal aero position, which means even on a perfectly flat stage, he can put down a lot of power, but he's also an elite climber so he got up i think it was like a six to seven percent initial climb not too long but he, he went last or ne nearly close to last and i guess just blitzed the field completely patrick bevan was the next best 25 seconds behind him he's the kiwi for ccc uh which is the bright orange polish team if you don't know and he's also a bit of a sprinter, so that was a great performance from him and revy cavagna came third the kind of quick step rider who to be Frank, I hadn't really heard of him, so that was a massive performance because really there's a massive gap between Roglic and those two guys and the rest of the field. The rest of the GC guys didn't even make top top 10. The next was Pogaccia, a minute and 30 behind Roglic. So Roglic really stamping his authority, I think, on this welter, and it made what happened in the first week, it put it in a completely different perspective because in the Tour de France, as I said last week, you got the Pyrenees and the Alps. They're at the back end of the tour, whereas for this Vuelta, a lot of the hard stages were in these first two weeks, particularly the first week, that Andorran, stage nine. And Quintana was in red six seconds ahead of Roglic into, going to this individual time trial, but pretty much was illusory, that lead, given his poor performance in that time trial, losing three minutes. I mean, some people were saying, was his heart really in it? Because three minutes is a lot to lose. Yeah, I mean, he's he's obviously not renowned for his time trialing, is he, Quintana? But, um, I mean, that was a, a massive deficit 
Yeah, to, I mean, he came 27th on the stage, so he's still in the top third, just about all higher, the top 20% of riders. But that's, I guess, the difference between guys who spend a lot of time in the wind tunnel. I've actually been doing a fair bit of digging in the background into Lotto, Lotto Yumbo or Yumbo Visma as they are now. I think they do a lot of work with the universities, university in Belgium on aerodynamics wind tunnel testing they partner with a guy who i found uh he writes a lot of scientific papers on aerodynamics and that's why they perform really really well in the team time trial and individual time trial and imagine if jumbo visma hadn't crashed in the first stage roglic would be way ahead of everyone it would be a dominant lead so this scientist guy then i mean who is he I think he's called Bert Blocken, and he, he partners with a few other guys in in Belgium and in Holland, and they're putting out all these uh, the highest level papers. I, I found them a couple of days ago when I was looking up for a video idea on whether Chris Froome, when he did when he sat on the top tube and pedaled in a in a Tour de France, mm. I wanted to think is that actually aerodynamic or is that just Froome being Froome? And this guy's written a wind tunnel data test, like a full scientific paper showing what are the most aerodynamic positions going downhill. And when you read these papers and then you look at it, it really colours you how you view cycling when you then go and watch all the Benelux teams like Quickstep and Jumbo Visma and then you see all their, their guys are descending exactly the same way down steep downhills the way this guy has prescribed or said is the most efficient aerodynamically downhill, which is the Pedersagan right over sitting on the top tube with your head over your front wheel probably don't try it at home no do not do not try this at home you, you see some people try that on group rides sometimes and you do think if you go down okay that's not going to be pretty yeah and although apparently it's you means you have a better center of gravity but your ability to if you have to touch your front brake in that position you're, you're done you're going to go over the handlebars but i read in this paper the fourth most aerodynamic position so Pretty, pretty good was the Marco Pantani where he would sit behind his saddle right behind in like a s- reverse Superman position. Yeah, over the rear wheel. Basically. Yeah, that was actually pretty aerodynamic and he was able to turn like that as well. So maybe he was ahead of his time without even knowing it in that regard. <laughs> Clearly. Right, so, so hold on. What was the most aero position? It was um, Matej Mohoric, this I think he's Slovenian as well, and Sagan do it. It's where you get get your nose and try and touch your front tire over your handlebars and then put your butt as then come off the saddle sit on the top tube and put your butt as far back against the seat post as possible so you you basically you flatten your stomach on top of the top tube so your back is completely flat tilt your head down and try and touch your nose to the front tire and that's the most aerodynamic and re- results in the least um friction or drag on the front tire but these are like minuscule differences between being slightly more elevated but being on the top tube is much more aerodynamic than being in the saddle there you go clearly these slovenians are all over this stuff i don't know why roglic used to be a ski jumper didn't he so that's all about understanding how aerodynamics works yeah exactly Mohoric did this in the 2013 junior i think or under 23 World Championships road race like six years ago. So he, he's a breakaway specialist. He's so good at this, these sort of things. Nice, nice. There you have it. So 
Okay, uh, Pat. So we had the ITT. That was Roglic's. And then I guess what else has been going on this week? We, we have to talk about Gilbert winning stage 12. Yeah, classic Gilbert win. You, you look at the profile of, of this stage, stage 12, with sort of Ardent classic type climbs at the end of it, you know, two and a half kilometers, 11% climb as the last climb of the day, about 12 kilometers from the finish. That's just screaming out for a Gilbert Arden's classic specialist. And he delivered for quick step. That was his 10th Grand Tour stage win. And everyone knows who Philip Gilbert is. And we were talking about this, this off air. I'll sort of put it to you. Like he's got 10 monuments by my count, 10 Grand Tour stage wins now, one world championships, road race victory he's also given a lot of stage wins as part of being quick step i mean i remember he gifted evil ampert a stage win when he sort of acted as a fake counter-attacker for him so he could even have more wins than he does now where does gilbert rank in sort of the pantheon of classic stage one day races i have him pretty high up mainly probably because i have i'm pretty young so i've got recency bias but i think he's had an outstanding career and is i think almost underrated Absolutely. I don't, so he, he doesn't have 10 monuments though, does he? He has 10 classics. Or- no, I think he has I think he has 10 monument wins. I think he's won Amstel Gold Race. But, ah, but Amstel Gold's not a, not a monument though, is it, Pat? Come on. Come on. All right, the five monuments. Let's go through them. Can you name them? Uh, Lege, Baston Liege, Paris-Roubaix, Rendezvous Vlaanderen, Giro de Lombardia, and... Sprinters, man. Really long. Milan Sanremo. Wow, I've really right. everyone yeah. everyone should probably just flood my YouTube channel with abusive comments after that. It's pretty humiliating, isn't it? Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> you are a disgrace. Yeah, it's just standard knowledge. <laughs> okay, so he's won Amstel Gold a few times, but that race doesn't mean anything. <laughs> Quite. All right, look, well, he, the only thing he hasn't won in terms of monuments, and this is the one he keeps, uh, he, he kind of won't be satisfied until that, this is why i think he keeps on racing is milan san remo isn't it that's the yeah, only one that he hasn't won uh because he won paris this year which was incredible amazing win yeah um and what is he now he's 37 so he's 37 next season he's going to lotto sudal isn't he yeah three three year contract too that's a big investment from them. Three years at 37 years old. 100%, yeah. So anyway, going back to the Vuelta, yeah, I mean, it was a perfect stage for him. Yeah, ideally set up for him. And I don't know, maybe he could get into another break at the end of this the Vuelta. Maybe he's a little bit tired. Maybe he's, I think he, he could be saving the legs, I think, for the world champs where he's about a fourth favourite, about 15 to 1 for Belgium. So uh, maybe he won't be so aggressive in the latter end of this Vuelta. Yeah, I mean, to answer your question, is he does he get the credit he deserves? I think he kind of does. I mean, he's a, definitely a legend, right? Yeah, all-time legend, all-time sort of Belgian into the pantheon of Belgian cyclists, but maybe on, in a career, I think he's a step below Valverde, and it's hard to argue that, he, that he's a better rider than Valverde all around, given Valverde's probably going to come second in this year's Vuelta overall. And has even won the Vuelta amongst many other classics and one-day races. I apologise to any of our Belgian listeners, by the way. Pat, um, Pat has been quite controversial here. <laughs> we'll talk up the Venipole later. It's all right. Cool. 
Okay. Uh, so what was it? The next day then, Pat, stage 13, there was that absolutely brutal um, summit finish up Los Machucos. And what happened? It was, a, it was, it was Slovenia day. Yeah, Los Machucos, a beast of a climb. I think it's, it's an H, HC category climb, seven kilometers at eight, 8.6%. But it, again, it's one of those nasty, nasty Strava climbs where you look at the average gradient and you think, oh, that's not so bad. Oh, it's actually six, six kilometers at 10%. But really, there's a kilometer in there at 13% and the start's only at 8%. So it, it's really up and down, classic Vuelta mountaintop finish. And Tadej Bogacha with the stage win with Roglic, and that vaulted him into third overall, I believe, ahead of uh, Michel Angel Lopez. So he was then three minutes behind Roglic. Slovenians one and three on GC with Valverde sandwiched in between them, two minutes 25 behind Roglic. I think it was at this point that Lopez started thinking, geez, I better start attacking Pogaccia to try and get on the podium and salvage something from this Vuelta because from what I saw following this stage, Lopez was looking a lot to Pogaccia to attack him and I think given the strength of the, the Jumbo Visma team and how no one can really – Roglic seems un, unflappable to be honest. I don't think they think they can crack him. But another – it's the second stage win from Pogaccia. Amazing for such a young guy and surely he's going to be winning a Grand Tour at some point in the next 10 years. When you watch the the finish on that stage, it seemed to me that Roglic just at the end was kind of happy for Pogaccia to take the stage and he, he didn't, it, it seemed he could have given it a bit of a nudge to try and um, pip him to the line. I, I, I don't know if you thought the same. For sure, Roglic could have probably contested that a little bit harder, but if, if he's not really going to gain any more GC time, it's a Slovenian ally. I'm not sure if they're actually friends or not, just because they're both from Slovenia. Doesn't, I don't, they might not be friends, but assuming they are, he's a young guy, probably knows him pretty well, and he's not a big threat to him on GC anyway. Uh, Roglic is underrated for how strong he can finish in a kick. He, he can go toe-to-toe with Valverde on a summit finish, so... Yeah, given that, you're probably right. I mean, inclined to agree with you. No, no harm in the Contador special of gifting gifting the stage win to um, just keep some friends in the bunch. What do you think about uh, Roglic's climbing style? So uh, it's something that I've noticed this week, how he, he he's almost in the drops the whole time he's climbing. Uh, very easy to pick out um, among the, the peloton going up these climbs. Um it is I mean, it's a very old school way of climbing um, and you don't really see it much these days, do you? It is very different and I think he he's a guy with a special physiology much different to the other riders. Even if, if you watch him in the lot, in the Jumbo Visma, sort of the mountain lead-out train, which is still about seven guys deep, they all look completely different to him and his, his limb proportions to me look a bit different. Maybe, maybe I'm imagining it, but... He's got this ski jumping background that's probably built up his his muscles and his muscular endurance and his legs in a different way or the fibers. I don't know. I'm not an exercise scientist, but he's he's got a unique background compared to the other riders. So that's probably why he climbs in almost a unique way for the modern era. And yeah, I love watching it too. No, definitely. And I always think he, he looks sort of very ominous, very imposing. You know, if you were riding in front, 
and you sort of had a little look back and you saw him there, you'd be like, oh, right, okay, it's on. <laughs> yeah, you see this shredded guy, he's sort of cut jaw and I think he's got a few tattoos and massive thighs, about five foot seven, just looking, no smiling, <laughs> just ready to destroy. He's the kind of guy on the group, group ride, you just sit behind him and think, Whenever this goes uphill, he's probably get back. He's about to torch everyone. Definitely. Another interesting thing, Roglic is obviously, well, the whole of Yomo Visma, they ride um, Bianchi Ultras, don't they? And it's just something that came to mind. You know, these guys, they're going up these long alpine climbs on, on aero bikes and it, it doesn't matter, does it, anymore? No, and up to up to 7 to 8%, I think there's also been studies done that I've read a few years ago that – Aero bikes probably outperform. This is for the pros as well, who are going up 6% climbs at speeds we can only dream to go up. But up to about 7 to 8%, aero bikes are still more advantageous than a climbing bike for a professional, given the speeds they go. Um, so maybe that's why they, they stick on them. Maybe that's just what he's used to. That's the position he's dialed in. He's got the handling of it. Ultra, I wouldn't say they're an aero bike, but I wouldn't say they're the sort of S-Works Venge type level of aero bike which is they're a bit unwieldy like I, f- I feel sorry for like Alaphilippe's aero bike doesn't look quite as classic as the Bianchi in my humble uninformed opinion no I mean like the Bianchi Ultra is like one of my favorite bikes to look at um I've never actually ridden one um but they're yeah I mean they're just very expensive basically <laughs> they're the sort of bikes that's why i don't get expensive bikes like that because i'd get it look at it fall in love with it two weeks later i'd break it so <laughs> and he gets one replaced for free he, he, he certainly does uh what else happened pat so i guess stage 15 your man the man that you uh picked out last week sep Coos, what happened? So Seb Coos, th- this was stage 15 and 16. This is a really interesting sort of strategy that that happened and so it happened in 16 with Fulsang as well. I might be foreshadowing that a bit, but I think we'll see this in future Grand Tours to come. And it's where Grand Tour teams with really strong, a really strong climbing roster like Astana and Jumbo Visma have here, it's allowing... They're strong, not just their weakest climber or weakest domestic to go up the road, but one of their strongest guys go up the road at the start of a climb or get into the breakaway. And then depending on how their GC guy is going, they'll say go for stage win or if the breakaway that they're part of, if their break gets brought back, they're at least there for a slingshot so that their GC guy can slingshot over to him and they can lead him up the climb the same way. Movistar have been doing this with Soler and Amador a bit, but they don't actually let those guys go for the stage win. And I think nothing makes a guy like Koos, Fulsang, Mark Soler, if Movistar had allowed him, but allowing them the luxury of going for a stage win when they have great climbing legs. And that's what happened with Koos. And he's one of the guys who actually has his Strava power data up on public on Strava and pretty crazy numbers for such such a young guy. He won the Tour of Utah. That was his big, sort of the biggest race he'd won before this. He won that general classification. But by my back of the envelope calculations on his Strava data, I think he did about nearly 400 watts for 27 minutes, 395 watts for 27 and a half minutes, up to 10.5% climb. 
and his list weights 64 kilos. It could even be less than that, given we're two weeks into this tour. So 6.1 watts per kilo for that length of time. For a young guy, young American too, I think this is a, the American rider that they should really be getting excited about. No, it was it was really, really interesting to watch because uh, there was that – the guy leading up the climb initially was uh, from one of the, the pro Conti teams, and I can't remember his name. But anyway, he was out there on his own, and he was, he was in the hurt house. Like you saw his face. He was like, uh, I'm done. I'm done. And then he had Sepp Kuss just slowly just tapping it out behind him. And Sepp Kuss didn't really look like he was kind of suffering. But he just, it was just, yeah, like you said, 400 watts or whatever for 27 minutes. And he was just in the zone. It's crazy because, and the data replicates that. Because if you go and look and isolate this this climb in his data, his cadence is perfect. 84, 85 cadence very consistent and yeah i agree he looked like he was doing it easy but his heart rate averaged 185 heart rate for the hint for 28 minutes which is pretty high i'm not sure what his max heart rate is but that's got to be up there to 100 percent of his sort of threshold heart rate so he would have been in the hurt box and then he was smiling at the end slapping fans hands high fives it was great to see everyone loved it. I think that really endeared him to the Spanish fans as well. I've seen a lot of commentary from non-American, non-Anglo fans, and they were they loved it. I'm not going to lie. When he started doing that towards the end, you know, putting his hand out and giving people high fives, I was like, "Sep, for Christ's sake, be careful." I was just thinking if something got caught in in a fan's, I don't know, clothing or whatever, and he just went down. I was like, "You will never ever live this down." I know. For someone as young as him as well, this is the biggest win of his career by far. I mean, I would rather probably have a stage win in a Grand Tour than the overall win at Tour of Utah. Not not knocking it, but this is a massive win in front of the whole world. And he's just casually, like he's been there for 10 years, like he's Philip Gilbert winning his 10th Grand Tour stage, just high-fiving everyone. Yeah, I mean... Very special ride from Sep there. What else? On stage 15, we had Quintana losing time. Um, it's becoming a bit of a consistent theme for Quintana in the Grand Tours. I don't know if he's just lost interest now riding for Movistar. He's obviously moving on next season. Um, but it's always a bit kind of, it's always a bit sad to see him just drop back. It's strange because, like I mentioned before, his facial expression doesn't change. So you're like, are you. Are you trying or what's going on? I, I think he is. It's just his facial expression doesn't change whether he's in the hurt box or not. But Because I, I was surprised when he won stage two because over the years, Quintana's a really, he's a slow builder into Grand Tours. He works his way into them and he comes comes on strong right at the end. Well, he has done in the Tour de France in the last three days. But he started the Vuelta with fantastic legs. So maybe maybe he peaked in the first week, in the hardest week. It took a lot out of him. He's back-to-back back with the Tour, and he's, he's sort of on this extended extended peak in his season, and it's just become too much. He's got a bit of overload, and it's really the, he's on the down downward trend at the end of his training cycle. That could be it. There's also the fact that relations between him and Movistar management are probably not at an all, all-time high either. Having it was announced last week, as as we mentioned on the pod, that he's going to Arkea Samzic. So they're not exactly riding for him and protecting him. Maybe he's having to clean his own bike and 
prep his own meals. Brilliant. Yeah. I mean, Quintana, uh, we do love Quintana. So hopefully he'll be back um, and, and, you know, fighting for those, for the general classification in, in the big races next year. Although that will remain to be seen really riding for Pakia Samsic. But anyway, that's for another time. So just wrapping up on the Vuelta, uh, I guess the only other thing to quickly say was, I don't know if anyone else saw on social media. So we had Katusha rider Willie Smith. Um, so he came down in a crash on stage uh, 15, I believe, uh, and he got a really nasty gash to his knee. Anyway, he, uh, he subsequently had to have 16 stitches in his knee, and he posted this, this photo of those stitches, and it was, I mean, gruesome is, is, is the way to describe it. Anyway, so his, his knee was all stitched up, and then he, he actually completed the next day's stage and when you look at the photo you think that must just hurt like hell i think reason number 150 why being a pro cyclist is not as glamorous as you think that looked so bad that cut i i, I really don't understand why he is riding and, and i know you know everyone wants to be a hard man everyone wants to you know tough it out but what, I was just thinking, just hygienically, what if that gets infected? He's a young guy. This is his livelihood. You're not going to win a stage in that condition. How, how much can you really help your teammates with your knee looking like that? If you're just literally riding around with a half-opened wound and a hole in your leg around so the last hard five stages of the Tour of Spain, I, I just don't really see the upside. I hope the team isn't making him do that. I presume they're, I presume they're not. I hope they're not, but... Willie Smith, he, he's a pretty cool guy, actually. He's got a YouTube channel and he's been posting some stuff on there as well throughout the Vuelta. So maybe, maybe people ask him, ask him there, why are you doing this? <laughs> why are you doing this? All I was thinking is every time, you know, there's a pedal stroke, obviously at that point in the knee, your skin would just, would just um, you know, it would need to contract and then expand again. And, and that would just be so painful on those stitches. It was like, ow, horrible. It's not like these guys have got a lot of fat or given their skin to begin with, given they're all like 8% body fat. So it'd be doubly painful for them. Exactly. Exactly. You're so right. I mean, who would want to be a pro cyclist? Anyway, uh, predictions then for the last week very quickly, Pat. Uh, Sam Bennett to win another stage, the last sprint stage, if he manages to get over the rest of the mountains. He's looked the best sprinter by far, although there's not been too much competition for him. And Primoz Roglic to wrap this up pretty easily without being tested. I think Lopez, to his credit, Michel Angel Lopez is really trying hard. You, you can't accuse him of not trying. He tried multiple times and early to get away from Roglic, but the Jumbo Visma team is absolutely stacked. Just the ominous sight of... Tony Martin on the front controlling everything all day. And speaking of Tony Martin type people, shout out from you last week, Oli Vasil Kirienka. Your boy got in a breakaway or tried to get away in a break. I think last night I saw the, the old dog. <laughs> no, no, there's, there's still life in the, in the old dog. I, I, I saw that. He eventually, um, he eventually hit, hit, hit the wall and just had to. Um, it, it was. The climb up, um, the one that Sepp Koos won, wasn't it? I think he was leading up there. Yeah, he he literally looked like he was riding up a different climb to Sepp Koos. <laughs> he, he, he's our boy though, Vassal. Good man. Yeah, there's a special place in our heart for him. 
Cool. So that's the Vuelta then. Uh, let's move on swiftly to the other big race that's going on at the moment. That's the Tour of Britain. So very quickly, we've had three stages of the Tour of Britain. Dylan Grunewagen. 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 He's won two stages. He looks in really good shape, actually. And then Matteo Trentin uh, won the other. It's been, uh, I mean, both all, all three of them have, have ended in, in bunch sprints. Um, as we discussed briefly last week, Vad van der Poel is, is riding the Tour of Britain. He's sitting well. He's well-placed in GC, and he's been up there at, at pretty much every stage, I think. But he hasn't quite uh, won one yet. He's put in a few... Big efforts, though, to, to try, but Dylan Grunewagen has, um, has just pipped him there. Um, I don't Have you been watching much of the Tour of Britain, Pat? I've been following just the finales because it's the welters on, and I knew these three stages were pancake flat just about, so they were going to end in a sprint. And if it's a sprint, that's where Vanderpoel will be. But um, I, I put up a video recently on Dylan Grunewagen, and I said to spend about an hour practicing how to say his name because I get a lot of angry people, a lot of angry Dutch people telling me if I butcher it. But he's looked really good. That stage three finish was actually a, quite a hard finish, really suited Vanderpool and a little bit of inexperience shown from Vanderpool, maybe just a bit of bad luck, but he got boxed in pretty badly on that stage three that really suited him. And he, he came second in the end, but he, it came from almost a hopeless position. So probably a few years will doing good if he's doing more bunch finishes i think he's the fact that he is so strong almost covers up the fact that he does get into bad positions sometimes and that's why when he does win it it's super it's ridiculous he's the sort of guy who'll get caught when he's been in a two-man breakaway for an hour and then go and sit 10th wheel and then contest the sprint and come third no quite but i just hope that um that doesn't come back to haunt him as his career goes on let's say when he's not quite in form uh, and he could maybe contest the, the 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 win if he was in a better position. So I always thought, like you know, Cav, for example, was always the master of positioning, wasn't he? He wasn't necessarily he didn't have the the highest max power or anything like that, but he was excellent at the positioning in 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 the sprint. Yeah, and at the level that Van der Poel will eventually be competing at say if he's contesting grand tour sprints i don't know if that's in his future but when you're contesting sprints with the big boys like hornerweg and ewan sagan and pascal ackerman and bennett there's no room for error particularly on the flat you you can't get into bad position because those guys watts are so high too and they're at such a high level that you can't be giving anything away to them whereas maybe in a a race like Arctic Race of Norway, where the, the Watts discrepancy between him and Brian Cockhart is massive, he can get away with some bad positioning. Yeah, exactly. So what else happened in the Tour of Britain? We had, just very quickly, we had home favourite Alex Dowsett. He's a bit of a veteran now, isn't he? The Katusha rider, stage two, about 5k to go. He went off the front and he actually managed to, to establish a little, a little gap uh, and he was out on his own until literally 50 meters out. And you were just like, Alex, keep pedaling, dude. And they just caught him, literally 50 meters out. That would have been uh, a stage win for British rider Alex Dowser at the Tour of Britain. would have been epic for him. Uh, unfortunately, he just couldn't quite see it through. Um, 
And also stage three was quite funny because they had to neutralize the race. So standard half, half, halfway through, or it was about two thirds of the way through because a level crossing. So, you know, where, where the trains come over, uh, a level crossing decided to just come down. Uh, so they had to neutralize the race and stop it and then let the brake go four minutes up the road after, after the crossing came back up. Um, but hey, hey ho, you know, that stuff happens from time to time. I wonder who that, who that suits more. Do you think the breakaway gets a bit of an advantage over the peloton for that? Because I guess those guys would be more tired, so they get a rest. And then the peloton, I guess, has to start the chase again. Well, it's kind of a difficult one, isn't it? Because if the chase isn't organized, then, you know, a, a, a break like that, a pause like that would massively favor the, 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 the peloton, you know, um, sorry, the, yeah, the peloton, because then they can get back together and, and, you know, start organizing themselves to chase the break down. So I don't, I don't know, to be honest with you, it seems like it could work in either favor because you're right. Cause if you're in the break, it's a nice opportunity to to get some recovery in but um i don't know what the protocol is then when you know those things are neutralized whether you can just take on board a load of food and stuff you know from the car presumably not yeah true i i think the big stage that's going to decide this tour of britain is the individual time trial because there's not big gaps on gc and it's 14.4 kilometers i think matteo trenton is is up there on gc is he he's leading gc I believe. Uh, yeah, yeah, he still is, yeah. So Matteo Trent is leading GC. He's a good flat short time trialist. He's got good high power for that 15, 17 minutes. I wonder if this will be the time that a British rider does get their stage win. Alex Dowsett, good time trialist, obviously our record holder, if my memory serves me correctly. So hope maybe that will be the former, stage for him. Former hour record holder, yeah. <laughs> Cool. Uh, yeah, Tour of Britain. So that's ongoing. Uh, I can't believe we forgot to mention Jakob Fulsang winning his first ever Grand Tour stage at the Vuelta. Just going back a little bit, just mega kudos to Jakob. And I couldn't believe that he hasn't won one in his whole career. It's crazy. He's been such a good rider from particularly 2017. This is his 2019 Palmares. Crazy. Tirreno Adriatico, third overall. Tour of Basque Country, fourth overall. Criterium de Dauphiné won it overall. He won Liège Baston Liège. He came second in Strada Bianchi, third in Amstel World Race, and second in La Flèche Wallonia. That's a crazy good season. And now a Vuelta stage win. Yeah, I mean, it's been a mega 2019 because um, he had a crazy classic season, um, although Alaphilippe must have. Um Frustrated. Yeah, Alaphilippe Philippe pipped him a couple of times, I think. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, very quickly, well done, uh, Jakob Fulsang. I think he's one of those riders where if I was him and I wanted to really get the most out of my career, although who am I to say what Jakob Fulsang should do, but I will anyway, He he's not going to win the Tour de France next year and there's just no way he can. And I think it's kind of trying to put a square, square peg in a round hole, him training for that when you look at his results in the big classics races and he won a monument this year that's where he should be focusing all his attention on maybe winning one week he looks really good in the one week long stage races like Tirreno and Criterium de Dauphiné maybe two to Swiss so I think that's what he should just focus on I always like it when he's um he's in the mix because you have Sean Kelly commentating for Eurosport who just is terrible with names anyway but he, he really can't 
pronounce full sayings, surname at all. <laughs> so he says all sorts of stuff. Uh, hilarious. I, I really like Sean, Sean Kelly commentary. I like Sean Kelly too, but yeah, she's just calling the aesthetic Danish <laughs> Cool. Uh, so yes, quick shout out to, to Jakob Fulsang. A couple of other bits to talk about this week quickly. So last week I mentioned I was off to Eurobike. So, so Eurobike is the world's biggest cycling trade show. So basically every cycling brand in the world uh, congregates into this place in Germany. And, you know, that's where they release kind of new bikes, new tech, that sort of thing. Uh, for those of you that are interested, I guess from my perspective, a few bits to quickly pick out. Um, Wahoo launched a new smart bike. So an indoor trainer, a smart bike called the Kicker Bike. Uh, and what it is, is, uh, well, it, 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 it's a smart bike. It made lots and lots of noise at the um, event, the level of kind of personalization, customization you can do to the bike to really dial in your position is is out of this world. And they have this app, which uses augmented reality to to fit your bike. So to get your bike fit um, onto the onto the smart bike uh, and really dial it into like the nearest millimeter. Everything about it is very, very cool indeed. Um, and I can see it doing very well. It's probably, I, I gave it a little pedal. It's definitely the most realistic indoor trainer I've ever tested, I've ever tried. Um, the only thing is, at least at the moment, it's it's three and a half thousand dollars. So uh, probably out of most people's um, budget range, but you know, who knows? Who knows? One to bear in mind. Um, 4i as well. So 4i are a Canadian company. They um, have been focusing on power meters up to now. So they've got crank-based power meters that are proving very popular because they're a bit more affordable uh, than, than many others. So they released a, a wheel-on smart trainer as well at the show. Now, this was one of the coolest things I saw, actually, because what it does is it uses it doesn't use rollers. Uh, so your rear wheel doesn't actually touch anything it uses magnets in the same way that a roller coaster does uh, it uses those magnets to control the resistance uh, so you need an alloy wheel to it but it's very very cool because you're never going to get any um, wear on your rear tire or anything like that um, so it's just it, it's a, quite a neat practical solution for a wheel on trainer um, what else Ceramic Speed, I mentioned last week, Ceramic Speed have been working on this chainless drivetrain system that they announced last year. This year at Eurobike, what they did was basically reveal that the thing can actually shift. And it's quite difficult to explain how it works. I would suggest just going and checking out Ceramic Speed's social channels to, to see it in action. But the point is the thing can shift. So there's no, there's no chain at all. Um, and it shifts wirelessly. At the moment, it's still very much in the kind of prototype stage. But I was speaking to the guys at Ceramic Speed there. And honestly, you know, they think that this is the future of drivetrains for, for bicycles. Uh, so, you know, it's going to be very, very interesting to see how that plays out. The whole point is that it's, it's more efficient. So it, they say it's 99% efficient, basically, as a drivetrain, whereas existing systems with a chain are only like 97 
so something like that. Um, so that's uh, ceramic speed. Uh, there were lots and lots of other indoor training um, things happening, new releases. Basically, there seems to be this new. There seems to be a lot of competition to 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 Zwift. So Zwift is obviously a, the, the biggest player in this market, uh, and some of the other. Um, players that are out there are putting out some quite cool stuff. So there's a Czech brand called Rovi, you may have heard of, that use augmented reality for their online training platform. Uh, there's a platform called Road Grand Tours, now known as RGT Cycling. That looks very cool indeed. Saw a little bit of a behind the scenes at what's going on there. Um, and then on Swift, um, on Zwift even generally, you can steer now on Zwift, which is really cool. Um, so I tried that out. Uh, it's still quite early days in terms of that, that technology, but, um, yeah, I mean, it just makes the thing even, even more realistic. Um, so that was Eurobike other than the tech Eurobikes in Germany. So generally you can get some like good German food, basically. It's, it's just like German food, German sausages and schnitzel and stuff like that. You like a bit, do you like a bit of schnitzel there, Pat? Uh, oh. Probably outing myself as a vegan schnitzel fan here, but <laughs> I'm a bit of a. I am a self-confessed skeptic about all this technology, but that Wahoo indoor training bike is something that even I was like that has got my attention because I'm a bit blessed in Brisbane in Australia. Indoor training is not exactly something you have to do very often or at all, to be honest. But that bike looks so realistic; you don't have to worry about getting your $5,000 or more or however expensive your pride and joy road bike is and latching it in and maybe breaking it or just, just the hassle of having to do that in and out if you've only got one bike like I do, just to have that set up. And, yes, it's super expensive. It's 3500 now. Probably get a bit cheaper as the price, the price will come down. But I always think would you rather pay 1500 1700 I don't know how much a tax Neo is either. It is Australian dollars. Pay that amount for a thing you don't really use, don't you really like, or spend maybe if it goes down to three grand, twenty-seven fifty, on something you actually love and makes you a lot fitter. That that's worth it in my book. No, exactly right. I think that's always going to be the kind of question to ask yourself. One thing I didn't mention about the bike is that you can actually you can um, you can customize the shifting, so you can actually match up. Shimano shifting, SRAM shifting, or Campagnolo shifting on the on the actual bars there on the shifters, which is very cool. So, so the way to think of this thing is it's based. Yeah, they, they've tried to make it as realistic to your bike as possible, um, and that goes for the way it's set up and also the ride feel. Like I said, the ride feel was just crazy. It, it felt very, very much like riding out on the road. So. That was Eurobike, um, uh, very exciting, um, and you'll be seeing lots more of that stuff, I suppose, in shops and what have you over the next few months. Um, didn't you run into? Didn't you run into a celebrity? <laughs> just a few, Pat. Just a few. Uh, DC Rainmaker. Uh, I got a selfie with DC Rainmaker. Um, Ray. He's actually called Ray Maker, which is. Um, the Rainmaker. <laughs> Literally, Rainmaker. So DC Rainmaker. <laughs> and then also I got a selfie with Roman Bardet, um, who was there doing some stuff for, for Look, I think, one of his sponsors. 
but he's like the nicest guy. So chilled. You can let, I was like, what, what are you doing here, Roman? And, you know, just telling me about it. And to be honest with you, not many people kind of recognized him. Really? Yeah. I, I guess it, maybe because it's more of like a trade show. So there's like an awful lot of kind of e-bike and commuter bike brands and all that sort of thing. So it's not just pure road cycling. Um, but Roman, yeah, he was there. He is, dude, he is lean. I think he's the sort of guy I think will actually have a good business career after cycling. I'm pretty sure he has a like a high-level degree from uh, Grenoble University or something like that. He seems like a pretty switched-on smart guy. That, that That's niche knowledge, that, uh, Pat, where he, was, where he studied. <laughs> it's kind of a bit creepy. <laughs> You got to you got to know all the writers' backgrounds so you can get into their minds if they get into a breakaway. That's, that's how you know. All right, okay, uh, and just a couple of bits to cover off then uh, this week, Pat. So you saw what happened to Chris Froome? Yeah, pretty pretty funny. I, I remarked this is just a, the second stage of Team Ineos and Chris Froome continuing to crash conspiracy that they're adding extra injuries to that conspiracy. Did Chris Froome actually cut his hand cutting an onion? We'll never know. But he did look pretty funny in the bed. It was a he looked like an Egypt smirk, smiling like a like a cat with his hand just about fully bandaged. I think how, how have you done this? Do, do normal people do this? Why is he allowed near sharp objects at this point? I mean, absolutely ridiculous. Really, if if, if you were Chris Froome, you would be like, what? Like honestly. You know what I mean? It's, it's so stupid. <laughs> and it's kind of, it, I know it sounds stupid, but this sort of injury can actually affect, can really affect your ability to ride. He's cut a tendon, severed a tendon in his left hand. That's surely going to affect his ability to shift, brake, grip the, grip the handlebars. And it's not like his handling, you know, in, in the wind and in the rain was... 100% fab, fantastic to begin with. So it might actually have a long-term effect on him. <laughs> we will see. Uh, get well, Chris, I, I guess. Um, and then finally, Pat, uh, someone uh, has been announced uh, for the Belgian team for the World Championships, one of your favorite riders, right? Yeah, one of the guys really close to my heart. Remco Evenepoel is riding for Belgium. He got announced in their team. And I think this is where a lot of people that follow cycling already obviously know who this wonder kid is, but this is where the whole world is going to see who this guy is in the World Championships road race. I'm not saying he's going to win it, but he's going to be in the select group with guys 10 years older than him, really duking it out as their equal. He's fifth favourite in the betting market, so... If you think he's if you think he's no good, well, a lot of people do think he's pretty good. He, him and Gilbert are, are joint sort of leaders for Belgium, and it'll be really interesting to see tactically how they use those two to maybe counterattack. And they both have elite long distance breakaway ability, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I saw the Dutch team as well that's been announced for the Worlds, and and that's strong. That's Van der Poel, Terpstra, Mollema, Dylan van Baal, Mike Turnerson. Remember him from the Tour de France, uh, where he was, yeah, I mean, he was on a crazy level at the Tour. Um, so, yeah, they're going to be uh, very strong at the Worlds as well. Imagine how happy the UCI will be if this comes down to a two-up sprint between Van der Poel and Evenepoel. That would be just marketing glory and be so good to watch as well. 
can't wait. That's obviously in what about two, two and a half weeks, isn't it? It's coming up quick. Yeah. Uh, cool. So I think that's all for this week, Pat. Did you have anything else you wanted to quickly touch on? No, I'm just I'm just hoping that Roglic manages to close out this Vuelta. It's obviously a bit bit sad what happened to him in Giro, as, as sad as sports can be. But this year he's got a lot, or in the Vuelta has got a lot stronger team. So ho- hopefully he closes that out. I'm kind of excited to see who who wins more stages out of Matteo Trenton and Dylan Groenewegen and at the Tour of Britain. Both of them are looking really good, but otherwise, just there's lots of cycling going on. There's there was a Brussels Classic on recently. So I'll just be following the Vuelta and the Tour of Britain, I think, and trying to get as much sleep as possible around that. Good stuff. Good stuff. Okay, well, I think that's all from us this week. Thanks for listening, uh, and we will hopefully uh, see you next week. Um, So, yeah, see you then, Pat. Ciao. Thanks for having me on all week.